Hello, beautiful listeners, and welcome to The Premise. I'm your host, Jennifer Thompson. And I'm your host, Chad Thompson. Hi, Chad. Hi, the one you barely hear from. That's, That's right. The, this, this has been kind of crazy. These have been some upside down times <laughs> on planet yeah. Earth. We've been sequestered for how long? I think like three weeks now. I think it's more than that. Really? Maybe a month? Yeah, I think we might be a month, a month and a half in. You know, I just want to say to it's our listeners... It's tough to say when you, when you work from home, That's right? true, when we're always at home. I just want to say to our listener, we hope you're, you're staying safe and, you know, using this time for good, whether you are being creative yourself... We're taking in all the creative content that's available right now. Oh, like like Questlove live streaming his DJ sets. That is true. We have been cooking dinner to Questlove and we want to just shout out to Quest. Thank you. We're in a time when the ability to reach out and touch each other virtually matters more than ever. Remember to check in with your loved ones. Schedule FaceTime. My little sister is doing trivia night with her friends on Zoom. Sweet. There's so many things we can do to stay positive, to bring joy into our life. And I just want to encourage you to think outside the box. And I also want to encourage you, listener, to record your story during this unprecedented time. Document your experience. We're going to be able to look back on this and hopefully we can learn from it and become stronger. Here on the premise, we believe that stories help change our experience, build empathy, and bring us together. And as you know, the San Diego Writers Festival has been postponed until wah, further notice. Wah, wah, wah. Right. But silver lining. Chad and I are here and we will continue to bring you weekly episodes. All of our guests have been really gracious in calling in and having the right microphone so the sound is good for you. But in the meantime, thank you for being here. We're honored to be part of your listening experience. Yeah. Thanks for joining us here in the bunker. In the bunker. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Today on The Premise, Chad and I are speaking with Jeff Auervan from his home in New York City. Jeff is an attorney, an author, a writing coach, an editor, literary agent, a father of two, a husband whose wife Jessica Gigi is also an author, and most recently Jeff is launching a publishing imprint, Stone Tiger Press, with three titles set to release in 2020. Is that right, Jeff? That is correct, except I have three kids. You have three kids? <laughs> There's five of you in your apartment in New York City. There is. Wow. So tell us, how's that going? Everyone being at home and together in what I assume is a New York City small space? Uh, yeah, I mean, our space is not terribly small relative to New York City. Spaces, right, what we're used so, to. <laughs> yeah, so we're... we're um, we're doing we're doing well and you know thankfully we're all healthy right now and, yeah absolutely that's the main thing and um you know our kids are great and they're dealing with everything as best as they can sure so, are they in school no the schools have been closed in fact the schools have now been closed permanently for the rest of the semester so, so they're not even doing zoom well they're they they have they have online classes now um, well, okay. Yeah. So I guess that's what I mean. Are they online in school? Yeah. Yeah. They're online in school. <laughs> that's, I mean, happening all over the country. We have friends who, whose kids are, you know, doing Zoom school as they call it. And it's pretty crazy. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty crazy for me because I'm trying to work and now I'm also homeschooling my kids at the same time and same for my wife. So it, it is, uh, you know. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a lot going on. It's a lot going on. <laughs> it's a big change. It's a yeah. it's a huge change. And you know, a lot of parents are used to their kids being not only in school all day, but then they have after school programs and you know all of these things that take up their time. To spend this much time together is a little different for people. They're getting used to it, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, we're we're really appreciating it actually. Um, Good. You know, we're we're yeah. getting to play Risk and Stratego and some of the old board games that we haven't turned to in quite a while. So you need uh, to dust off out from, from yeah, the back of the closet. Yeah, we're dusting it off and, you know, I'm yeah. spending a lot of time with my kids, which is actually, you know, very precious. So that's great. So it's bringing you together rather than driving you apart like you hear. Yeah, right. in my family for the most part. I mean, there was <laughs> a couple of moments there, but uh, yeah, right. we're okay. 
I'm glad to hear that. Do you mind telling us how it's going in terms of, you know, the rest of the city getting groceries and just kind of the, uh, just the general feeling in your neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, it's very quiet where we are. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. our our, our hunch is that a lot of people have actually left the city uh, if they're either staying with parents somewhere or they're fortunate enough they have second homes. I think a lot of people have left. Um, but mm. at, at seven o'clock, I'm sure you've seen, you know, uh, on, on the news at seven o'clock, everybody goes up on their roofs and opens their windows and starts banging pots and applauding for all the healthcare workers, yeah. uh, which is really, really fun. And, uh, it, there is this kind of sense of community out here and shared struggle. Um, yeah. I, I, there's not that many people on the streets. I mean, there are surprisingly uh, more people on the streets than I thought there would be, but um, there's not too many people on the streets. And a couple of times I've taken a walk around, um, it's got a, it's uh, got a real dystopian sort yeah. of feeling, feeling right. to it. Well, especially in New York, where cities are always bustling and always busy. You know, yeah, you don't walk it's, it's down un- a sidewalk. Without yeah. seeing a lot of people, yeah. yeah. It's unlike anything I've ever seen in, in Manhattan before, and um, obviously. And, it, you know, at first it had sort of like a post-9-11 feel to it of just kind of shock and crisis. And, you know, now that it's been going on for four or five weeks now, um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's more settled into kind of a dystopian uh, setting and... Uh, it's 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 odd and there's really nothing nothing much we could do but right stay right. safe and wait it out exactly and be there for each other and you know speaking of thank you so much for taking time out to talk with Chad and I here on the premise and you know kind of give them an idea of what's happening with you and your family there in New York and it's happening all over the world so I think sharing these collective ex- experiences is really important right now. I agree. And I really appreciate the opportunity actually to come here and talk to you guys. And, you know, um, it, 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 I, I find that even reaching out to people on zoom, uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, just online is, um, kind of takes me out of the kind yeah. of enormity of the situation in a way. And it, 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 it brings a semblance of normality and, and it's really, really true that we're, we're such kind of social animals in a way we really need to relate to other people. So I, I appreciate being here very much. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. We've been trying to remember to check in with FaceTime, you know, and actually seeing faces of our friends and our loved ones and yep. reminding ourselves, you know, what, what we're all in it for, right. For each yep. other. And well, I'm going to bring the conversation to a photograph that you sent me a couple days ago, which I appreciate. <laughs> it's, a, it's a selfie listener that uh, Jeff sent me. And Jeff, I got to say, compared to your professional headshot, you're looking a little shaggy beatnik. Um, <laughs> I got I to ask you. And at first, I got to say, it's a, it's a look I personally think really suits you. I actually love it. But was is this just your general look or is this, you know, post COVID-19 shaggy beatnik, Jeff? It's my real self, actually. That's <laughs> okay. it, it's the, the 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 stage shots are actually not my real self, but the the shaggy uh, uh, need a shave kind of look. Uh, that <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think yeah. it's totally working. T- t- takes me back to the late seventies. You know. <laughs> there you go. I was like, this is such a good look. I love it. <laughs> Chad's been getting you know the the beard and you know, we're all kind of letting things get to that, that look. So it, it works great for you. I'm glad to hear it's just your normal self. Oh, thank you. <laughs> now, now that I've been revealed, uh, now That's you know, right. everybody That's right. knows what's going on. Yeah. And yes, listener, there will be a photograph on the website. So you have a pretty interesting past. And I know that we're here to talk about the publishing world and, and storytelling. But you know, you're not only steeped in many aspects of the publishing world, but you were a geologist at one time. Is that right? I was. I that was. is so cool. Can you tell us more about that? Um, I was probably the world's worst geologist getting lost, <laughs> lost in the woods uh, quite a bit um, and trying to figure out how to read a compass. Um, <laughs> uh, but I... Uh, uh, geology is a great love of mine. It still is. I'm very fortunate to actually be working with uh, 
an excellent geologist who sold a book to Oxford University Press. And I saw that. That's, um, a, that's this year, right? Yeah, just this year. And I'm helping her finish up the, the writing of the narrative. So I'm, I've come sort of full circle. My first, my first real kind of career was as a geologist. I only did it for about two years. And then uh, I got out of the field. But now, now many years later, uh, I'm able to kind of bring together these two passions of geology and writing. And, you know, I've, I've been looking for a geology writer for the for a while now. Uh, and, you know, we were lucky enough to, uh, fortunate enough to sell the book to Oxford. And it's a terrific book called Song of the Earth. Um, and uh, by, by Elizabeth uh, uh, Irvin Blankenheim is the, is the author's name. And she teaches geology out in Colorado and is a very accomplished uh, writer and geologist. And so uh, I used to, I used to, I grew up reading books by John, Mc, John McPhee and, um, you know, I love natural histories and uh, to, to kind of immerse myself in this world and have a perspective on 4 billion years of earth history. Kind yeah, of put, yeah. puts, it just sort of like puts current events into perspective as well. And, you know, you realize that the natural world is, is incredible, is, isn't it? Yeah. Is, is huge. And, I'm a huge and, fan myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love rocks. And, and I got into it really more from the poetic kind of perspective. Geology is such a beautifully uh, poetic mm. science. Mm-hmm. And that's why I would get lost in the woods. I wasn't so much, <laughs> I, I wasn't so much into the science as I was into the romance and the, the beauty of it. Yeah. You know, that's so cool that you say that I find it to be romantic as well. And I'm a rock climber. And so when I took a geology class in college, I was going to school to be a journalist. I almost changed my major to geology. Mm. I was so taken with it. I would find myself in class, like almost in tears. And people were like, what is wrong (laughs) with that woman? Because I just was so moved by it. You know, just the beauty of the rocks and the planet and the earth. And like, to me, it's just, it is romantic. But I would have gotten lost in the science myself. I'm definitely a writer. I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Yeah, they would have had to send a helicopter both for you and me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But hey, now we can can be part of the publishing world. So that's so cool that it came full circle and you get to, you know, that love gets to come back. Yeah. Awesome. So you were also, just to go back to your interesting past, uh, a commercial fisherman. Is that right? Just for a summer. uh, Oh, okay. Okay. uh, I went up to Alaska and worked uh, as a salmon fisherman and worked in a cannery for half the summer and then went out on a boat for the other half of the summer. And uh, I have a, that's another, another place where my romantic heart resides is, is up in Alaska. Beautiful. Yeah. Just off the coast of Ketchikan. Uh, (laughs) No, no, a little bit further North. We were in the cook inlet off of, um, uh, Kenai and uh, living on an island uh, called Calgan Island with with a family who uh, uh, had a, had a fishing license for that part of the island and uh, mm. kind of an extraordinary experience. I was only I eight, only eighteen years old at the time, so it was mm. just really that's cool. Yeah, it was great. That's really cool. Chad is also a fisherman. He's not saying anything. Not commercial though. But that's, not commercial. that's a whole different. You're a fly fisherman. Yeah. Oh man! Oh, you're an you're an artist, <laughs> right? I don't know if I'd go that far. If you've seen my cast, you would, certainly wouldn't think I'm an artist. He's also into tenkara fishing, which we we got to. Oh yeah, we did Yvonne Chenard's book for uh, Patagonia. Patagonia Publishing, yeah, they wow. put out a tenkara, pretty cool. Wow. So that was fun because I was just getting into tenkara, and then that that book got uh, well. We, we procured them as a client at that exact time. Yeah, it was really interesting. They called us right when Chad was like really getting into it. And I was like, this is so weird, but we have this opportunity to do a book on Tenkara. I love it. We have yeah, a, it was really cool. We have a, 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 a woman in one of our writing workshops who's completing a book about how uh, her immersion in fly fishing in North Carolina helped her to uh, overcome her struggle with a very virulent form of cancer that she overcame. And, wow. Uh, yeah, it's, wow. it's a pretty cool memoir. That, that, that does sound cool. Yeah. Yeah. And also romantic, getting out into the wilderness and fishing and looking at the Yeah, beauty. but you know what? It's, it's equal parts frustration too. Is it? Oh, yeah. 
tying tying those damn knots on those tiny little flies <laughs> with my fat fingers like that that's just a recipe for disaster it's your no. version your version of golf i, I exactly. guess exactly <laughs> a, a good a way to ruin a good walk <laughs> Well, listen, I know our listeners are keen to hear about your work as a literary agent. So I'm curious, when did you decide to transition from representing people in the law world as, a, as an attorney and a lawyer to representing authors? Um, I've been an agent now for about seven years. And, okay, um, yeah. I, and how long did you practice law? Um, I practiced law at two large New York City law firms for about eight years. Um, okay. So I, I went back to law school later in my career and uh, got my degree, uh, worked for these two big law firms, Was uh, mostly did a lot of white-collar criminal defense and uh, got involved in really big corporate disputes, uh, and bankruptcies and things like that. And, mm, um, that sounds start, terrible. Started to hate every minute of it, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, um you lost and, the romance. I, I'm, I'm here. There was no. There was absolutely no romance. There's no romantic heart residing there whatsoever. Uh, uh, but the money was pretty good, and mm-hmm. uh, um, my wife had published her first novel at the time and was represented by Jennifer Lyons, who is now my uh, uh, my colleague at the literary agency. And as we got to know Jennifer socially, she heard how much I hated working in these big law firms and uh, suggested I consider coming over with her and, and working as a literary agent. And she knew I had some background in writing and wow. also in publicity and, um, you know, the law degree. Obviously, you know, having legal experience helps with um, negotiating contracts and things like that. So um, after a while, I decided that I was going to take the plunge. My wife was very supportive of it. And um, so I stopped. Uh, I, I Left left the law, although I'm still licensed as an attorney, um, and I joined her agency. And, That's awesome. Yeah, and it's been great, and I'm, I'm you know really happy to uh, be doing what I what I do, and you know I've, I've managed to kind of cobble together this uh, creative uh, uh, business that um, uh, has, has just makes me really happy at the end of the day. Whereas as an attorney, I was sort of like putting on the suit and tie and thinking. God, what's happening to me? I'm like 44, I'm 45, I'm 46 years old. Where's my life going? But uh, now I'm, I'm, you know, every day uh, to, to just kind of have my fingers in so many authors' works and, and to, you know, participate in such a creative process with so many brilliant people. Um, it's just, I'm not in it for the money. I'm in it because I just love it. And for the passion. Is, yeah. yeah, this is really what I want to do. And uh, uh, it's, it's just been just great for the past seven years. That's awesome. Can, can you tell us like, what was your first big client that you were, I don't know, I don't know if you can share that, if that's like, you know, choosing your favorite child, but. Uh, My first big. Yeah. Like your first, your first big client that you landed as an agent, like your first exciting client, maybe it was your first one. I don't know. Um, yeah. It's like asking me who's my favorite kid. Um, (laughs) I have a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Uh, I mean, each each of the authors that I work with have, you know, very special capabilities and talents. Um, I, I think some of the the most satisfying work that I've done has been uh, people who have come to the, a writing workshop that I started shortly after I became an agent, um, and people have walked in the door knowing nothing about writing and uh, have have stuck with it and have maybe taken even as much as much as eight weeks to write their first chapter Mm. um and had been through this workshop process with me and some of the people that come through my workshops then i i offer representation to not everyone but some of the ones that i think have most potential but some of these some of these authors that came in really not even at all understanding how to write um some of them are on their third and fourth books right now and, wow. Uh, uh, wow. and have found publishers and uh, have really blossomed as extraordinary writers. Mm. And probably those are, those are my, uh, those are the ones that I'm most proud of, even though, you know, they've had, you know, very different successes. Some have sold their books for, you know, quite a bit of money and others um, not, but they've all, 
you know, the ones that I have in mind that I've represented, you know, have become published and uh, have these really rich and rewarding careers. And um, I feel really good about, about that, almost like sort of helping them take their yeah. first, first baby steps and then uh, becoming very sophisticated writers. Which is pretty unique for a literary agent that you actually guide them through the process. And just so our listeners are clear, you founded the Write Workshops in New York in 2013. And I'd like to know how that came to be that you started working as an agent. And you were also an editor, a magazine editor for a while as well. I was. I, was an, I, I worked as an editor briefly on a magazine about Buddhism. <laughs> and, well, uh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, and and I wrote a book about Buddhism as well. But um, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I first started working as an agent, uh, I started getting terrific query letters from authors who had wonderful ideas and um, exciting premises for their stories. Uh, and I figured at the time, okay, I'll take this on. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll fix it and mm -hmm. we'll sell it for like, you know, a half a million dollars and uh, everybody's going to make a lot of money. Uh, and that was before I really understood how publishing <clears throat> totally works. Um, right. And uh, then I backed, uh, th there was one book in particular that I worked so hard on, hundreds of hours probably. It was the most brilliant idea and it it sort of anticipated, it was a novel that anticipated the rise of Donald Trump before anybody, even including Donald Trump, knew what was going to happen. And mm. uh, such a great idea. And we were just never, he was never able to get it executed uh, quite well. And and then I, I took a step back and I thought, well, why don't I like maybe establish a little bit of an incubator or uh, um you know, a place where people uh, with creative people with ideas could come in and we can really get in under the hood and work on the writing and um, discuss all the elements of, of writing that, that contribute to a successful novel or nonfiction work and just come, come together week after week after week until we create, un, until we create a marketable project. And that's originally why I set up the right workshops. And so it, it does, in part, it serves as an incubator for me to find exciting uh, novelists and, and memoirists. Um, uh, other people that come in already have agents or they come in and they, um, they want to self-publish uh, and they, you know, they have a different maybe vision for what they want to do. But um, that's originally why I got going. So it was sort of like my minor league system, so to speak. And I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way at all. It just uh, is, you know, I think that people need someone to write with in order mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. to make it as good as it could be. I, I certainly do. I know. I, I mean, my my wife reads my works that I write, and um, uh, I think a lot of writers have somebody who helps them as a reader in order to um, make the book as uh, to make their stories really sing. And so yeah. I try yeah. to do that with the workshop. So I run them in the evenings, and I run them on Saturdays, and then during the day I work as a literary agent. It's a pretty good fit. That's awesome. Yeah. You know what? Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it's 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 really worked for me, and um, and you're doing a lot of really good things with people. I, I wanted to talk to you about how criticism affects aspiring authors for just a minute. It's really important that we workshop our writing, as you say, um, so we know it's good beyond what, you know, mom says it's great, right? right. But, but I, I also know from experience, we have to be careful who we invite to critique our work. And when I was still in college, I would often share my work with fellow student writers. And I found that people were incredibly calloused in their remarks. Yeah. Not only was it not helpful, but at one point I actually put my pen down and didn't write for almost 10 years. Wow. And it took someone pretty recently, actually, who encouraged me to pick up my pen again. And I tell the story because of something I read on your website, therightworkshops.com, that says workshop critiques should never be confused with criticisms. Can you talk about this in your approach to coaching as, you know, a writing coach? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, college is a very strange place, isn't it? Isn't and, it, though? <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I, I, I think everybody's trying to still find their identity there. And um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of other psychological uh, factors that are being played out in, in uh, writing seminars in college that maybe don't make it 
necessarily the ideal place uh, to kind of become encouraged to write your first novel. Uh, obviously, there are some programs that are terrific, but not all, not all programs are terrific just because of the emotional maturity, I think, of a lot, yeah. of, the, a lot yeah. of the students at the time. Um, but what, what we try to do here is, um, for, first of all, every, everything, every, everything we try to do, everything I try to do, and I don't always do this successfully and I fail many times, but everything I try to do, I try to do it through kind of a Buddhist perspective, uh, that's based on consideration for the other person. I try to live mm-hmm. my life that way. I don't, I, I, I'm, I'm quite bad at it. I don't at all mean to suggest that I'm a good, I'm a good Buddhist, I'm, but I'm trying. And, and so... Sounds exactly I, like something a Buddhist would say. Uh, does it? Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe a Buddhist from the Bronx would say that. So, um, so, you know, everybody that walks in the door, I try to really have respect for them and particularly their work. So I'm not here and I, and I, and I advise the people that are in here to not be here to like work out psychological issues although psychology has a lot to do with participation in a writing Mm -hmm. workshop um Mm -hmm. because you you have to know when to encourage the writer you have to know when to be critical of the writer you have to know when to push them you have to know you have to know each individual and know how far you could push them um and you also kind of have to have a sense of what their ceiling is and you know can can someone execute um what they what they're trying to execute. And if not, how do you lead that person to it? And maybe you don't do it in the first draft, but maybe in the third draft you get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, the, the kind of the art of collaborating with someone on writing has to be grounded on mutual respect. It's, it's just absolutely has to be, because if you feel that you're better than someone else, you're just talking at that person or patronizing them or talking mm-hmm. down to them. Meanwhile, to make a writing successful, it has to spring from that person's heart, it, especially in, in a genre like memoir, for example. It, what we respond to is profound honesty on the page. And right. if you can't respect that person and their life story, there's just no way that you could give anything other than criticism as opposed to critique. And so... You know, we, we keep it to the elements of writing. We're, 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 we, we, we focus on how does plot interact with character, how does setting uh, accent the story, you know, how to write, how to write uh, sharp dialogue. You know, I, I mean, the list goes on and on. Um, yeah. and, and, and not so much, I don't really like this story or not like, uh, you know, I don't, really, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't really think this character is, is very... Uh, appealing i mean th- this is this is like this kind of this kind of this kind of criticism is not really useful because you're just bringing your own stuff to mm-hmm. to the table and you're not really commenting on what the writer is trying to accomplish um i don't, I, I don't know if that was a long-winded sort of answer of what i was trying to uh, explain but it to me it's all based on respect and an appreciation and consideration let the writer tell the story that the writer wants to tell Yeah. Well, you know, I teach at a lot of writing conferences around the country, and I'm often asked if I'd be willing to do a read and critique. And I always say no. I just don't feel qualified, frankly. I mean, I'm a reader, yes, and I'm a writer, yes, but I don't feel qualified to tell someone what they need to fix, especially in like a 10 minute session. I feel like something bad could happen, you know, if I don't have like the right kind of positive feedback or, you know, the right way to say this can be better, that I could hurt that person's drive to reach their goal. And I think maybe I'm more sensitive to it than others because that happened to me. But often I find when people critique, you're right, they're bringing their own biases to it. They're bringing their own expectations. I do remember in a class one time, and this was in college, when this woman read her story and a couple people said, yeah, that's not believable. And she'd written it as fiction, but it was actually her personal story. And she didn't tell us that. And she wanted to write it as fiction, but she didn't want anyone to know that it actually happened to her. So when everyone, their biggest complaint was that it didn't seem real, that poor girl, you know. It's It's so true. Right? I I mean, it's so true, especially early on. uh, I, I, my very the very first English or writing class that I took was in college, and our first assignment was to write a story about uh, a nonfiction essay, 
and I wrote about seeing a UFO, which I did see when I was mm-hmm. seven when I was seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this story, and I got an F on it <laughs> because oh my gosh. because I didn't follow the instructions, and I did get discouraged, you know. Yeah, and. Uh, but- we want to know more about the UFO. <laughs> that's a, was it that's in a, Alaska? No, 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 no. It was in New Mexico, but that's another podcast, I think. Oh, of course it is. That's totally of course it was. I should have just guessed New Mexico. That's where they all are. <laughs> I know. Can you, can you tell us about it? Like, do you remember it enough? Yeah, I remember it, of course. But I, I, I uh, we were told to not talk about it for 50 years. I'm sorry. So I, it's classified <laughs> information. And I can't really, can't really discuss it. In, As an attorney, can't you get out of NDAs? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, you know, no, it's... Uh, I've got attorney-client privilege with myself. How's that? Ah. You know, the book that I'm getting ready to, the author I'm getting ready to interview next, his name is Keith Rosen, and his book is called Road 7, which involves a UFO and some mm-hmm. alien action, which will be next week. So this is a great lead-in. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to listen in for sure. Definitely. So now, yeah. how, how did you get from the unidentified part of that flying object to aliens? Mm, yeah. Good question. That, that to me has always been the, the leap, right? It's like, oh, it's un- unidentified. Who knows what it is? Hmm. Oh, well, who knows? I think I said that. I don't think you said okay. that, Jeff. Okay. I said aliens in the book, which, by the way, is fiction, <laughs> ah. to Jeff's experience of an unidentified flying object. It was unidentified. Yeah. All right. That's it. Yeah, by right? which you mean it, weather balloon. It was on the ground, though. I mean, it wasn't like we saw like something flying in the sky. It was on the ground. So uh, it... But we're going to end up spending a half an hour on that if I get into it. So. <laughs> okay, so, all right, we'll, we'll be fair. So I do, I do want to ask you. Back to books, you, I guess. Yeah, he's an author <laughs> and and a long practicing Buddhist in America, a lay Buddhist, I think is is what they say. And yeah. your book is the Star Spangled Buddhist, Zen, Tibetan, and Soka Gakkai Buddhism, and the quest for enlightenment in America. Did I pronounce that right? Soka Gakkai. Perfectly. That's quite a mouthful. Tell us more about this book and this journey and, you know, how Buddhism, you know, comes into play with your writing workshops and being an agent. And I think, I think it has a lot to do with how you handle every client, every writer. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. I want to hear more about it. Um, I try. Uh, it, it, uh, I, I, became, I, I became a Buddhist when I was 21 after I got out of college. Um, and, Wait, uh, so as a Buddhist, you went into law? Yes. Interesting. Hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> I told you I'm not necessarily a very good Buddhist, um, but I, I got into it when I was 21, so I've been, I've been practicing it and studying it my entire adult life. Um, uh, I loved the people that were in it when I joined, um, and... Um, it, it, the, the, the branch of Buddhism that I practice, which, which is affiliated with the Soka Gakkai is, uh, uh, very much focused on having respect for other people and seeing the, what's called the, the Buddha nature in other people that everyone has the capacity to be enlightened. And, um, it, it's just something that, uh, I'm not as active in the Buddhist organization as I was when I first started. I'm not very active at all, actually, now in it. But um, I continue to practice it uh, on a moment-to-moment basis. And um, I try to, anyway. And uh, obviously, I fail many times. But um, I, I bring that to the writing, I, 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 not just my writing, but to uh, you know, working with other writers. And, and the book, uh, I was always intrigued by the differences in the, the main Mahayana schools of Buddhism that have kind of taken root in the United States, which is Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, and Soka Gakkai Buddhism, which is also referred to as SGI. Um, and so I, there, was, there was no literature, there was no popular literature about the differences between these three approaches to Buddhism and Buddhism is really fascinating because there's actually hundreds of different approaches to Buddhism, all right. of which claim uh, the Buddha as the, the font of the teaching. So I packed up my then 10 year old at the time and we drove out to Boulder, Colorado and I interviewed a bunch of uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhists and, and went to some of their meetings and uh, got involved with the Zen monastery up in upstate New York 
and uh, wrote what I knew about the Soka Gakkai as well, and uh, was able to find a publisher and got and um, got the book published. And it was it's sort of a blended memoir um, study of Buddhism in America, at, and it came out a couple a few years ago. I love so, the title, "The Star Spangled Buddhist." Thank you. Where did that title come from? Uh, came from my editor hating my five other titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's good. It's good. You know, it tells you right away that we're talking about Buddhism in America and, you know, how it's how that's different. Um, Absolutely. And it is different. It's very different. Um, e e uh, I mean, obviously, the Tibetan Buddhist uh, comes from the Dalai Lama and, and, and from Tibet, a, tr a Tibet tradition, and uh, both Zen and Soka Gakkai Buddhism have Japan-based uh, traditions and uh one of one of the one of the main questions i think of probably any religion but certainly of buddhism is when it, it it changes cultures how do you separate out what's the culture and what's what's the teaching um, right right and so that that continues to be an ongoing debate and struggle i think for a lot mm -hmm. of philosophies mm -hmm. sure sure well speaking of philosophy your other book is how to coach youth baseball so every kid wins yeah, that one I wrote. That one I wrote because I just I I I met so many dads in in little league when my uh, my oldest son is a very serious baseball player and plays college baseball now, but uh, was always serious about baseball. And you know, I got into coaching little league, and that is, I think anybody who's involved in little league knows what a trip that is, and that you know, I mean, the the parents that are involved are far more competitive than the children that than are the children are, and yeah. it gets. It gets very political, and it gets. I mean, I've lost a lot of friends actually. Really, uh, through Little League, yeah, which you think is just a place where you know you show up with your kid and just have a nice day in the sun, but it people take it very, very seriously. Well, and, if you think about it, there's a lot of like mini series and movies based on kids Little League, right? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's, but the caricature is true, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're like the dad who just. <laughs> the crazed dad, yeah. Ends up getting arrested and like, things like Come that. Come on, yeah, dad. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, I saw a lot of things in, in that world of, of, of just youth baseball that um, I thought I tried to look at, you know, I guess with some sort of a Buddhist approach to it. And, um, uh, you know, my, my was philosophy was how do you, right. how do you, how, how does, how do you let every kid enjoy themselves? Because obviously the talent, levels are different from uh, mm -hmm. among the children and, and mm -hmm. so how do the kids who don't really know how to play well how do they you know how do they get value out of it how do they enjoy it so that's that's how i that's, that's how I cool that's an important book i'm sure <laughs> it's interesting to me how parents push their kids to be the best and to try harder and to win and you know is that really what it's all about i even see it in rock climbing parents would bring their kids into the gym and they would make them stay at the top and wouldn't let them come down until they finished the route. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to ruin your child on rock climbing forever because you've decided they need to go to the very top to be winners. You know, it's interesting how we do that to our kids. Well, I guess every child is different, just like every writer is different. And exactly. So maybe, yeah. maybe some kids need it. Maybe some kids don't. I don't, I don't know. That's true. Yeah. You got to know when to push. You're, yeah, yeah. It goes back to that. Well, you have been published traditionally, and your wife is traditionally published, and you have personally helped numerous authors get published via the traditional track. And yet you're a proponent, proponent of indie publishing. Can you speak to the notion of small publishing and self-publishing and the increasingly vital role that this part of the industry uh, plays going forward in publishing? I'm going to try to do this without getting into trouble with people, but yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Um, traditional publishing is super important and uh, traditional publishing is also under a lot of economic pressures. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I mean, there are large staffs that are getting smaller and production costs are getting higher. Uh, uh, the gatekeepers in traditional publishing at times have very narrow bandwidths about what they're looking for and what they want to publish. I don't think necessarily, I mean, I've, I've only been in the business seven or eight years, so I can't speak to what it was like 20 years ago, but 
uh, anecdotally, my understanding is that more and more books are purchased simply based on economic projections for the publishing house and mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. not always on the quality of the writing. Now, obviously, right. a, a really well-written book, I mean, uh, a tremendously well-written book is going to presumably make money. But um, we would hope. I, I think there's not as much room in traditional publishing now for, uh, for, for certain genres. And mm -hmm. uh, yet there's a lot of people interested in writing certain genres. Uh, and memoir is one that comes to mind. Uh, to get published as a memoirist, is, it's a pretty big challenge if you're a debut memoirist to get your book published. Uh, you either have to be writing exceptionally well or you need to have just a story that is remarkable and never been told before. Um, some people have remarkable stories and they don't necessarily write exceptionally well. And other people write exceptionally well and don't have that kind of a life story to tell. Uh, yet those books have a lot of value. Um, and where are you going to go with a book like that? Uh, right. The you know Obviously the advent of Amazon has in some ways opened the door to uh, a lot more, uh, uh, many more options in publishing. Uh, Amazon has also in some ways negatively impacted both the bookstore environment and the independent bookstore environment mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and big publishing in general, right? Amazon is, sure, yeah. has an extraordinary marketing uh, algorithm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've sold books to Amazon. I've sold authors uh, who, who've published with the Amazon imprints and they do an unbelievable job of marketing their own books, um, mm -hmm. uh, which mm -hmm. of course are not, on the other hand, not available in independent bookstores for the most part. Um, so they, 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 in many ways, Amazon in many ways, uh, both positively and negatively impacted the publishing market. But because of the whole technological revolution that we're still experiencing, really anybody can publish a book now. And, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think of it sort of, uh, I, I have, one, my, my son is at the City University of New York, which is a really terrific university system and uh, costs about $6,000 a year in tuition. Um, and I'm not sure he's getting any worse of an education uh, that he would be getting at um, some private university that uh, I, that would cost me eighty to ninety thousand dollars. Go ahead, call them out. You know who they are. <laughs> well, yeah, I think we all we all know who they are. And the fact of the matter is that the faculty at the city university system is is terrific. You know, they're like the highest paid faculty in the country, and uh, there are so many people with PhDs and who you know would kill for a job working at any university. And and so why would I need to go necessarily? to an, an $80,000 a year tuition school when I can get, when my child can get, I think, a terrific education uh, for a lot less. And I think similarly, and also the seats at these larger, more expensive universities are highly competitive and they're mm -hmm. hard to get into. Yeah. So I think the same goes for publishing. It, you know, in some ways, the opportunities for authors at large publishing houses are shrinking. I don't think that that's news to anybody. I mean, that's just the truth. And yeah. so almost in response to that, you know, and through the advent of <clears throat> technology, now there's other opportunities to, to, to get your works done and you can do it really successfully. Now, what does that mean? It means that you got to put some money up front to do the production yourself. Mm -hmm. And it also means that you got to like figure out how to market yourself or you got to find somebody that you can pay to help you market. But you know, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my authors have self-published and, and done really, really well. Now I, I'm starting a publishing imprint in, in conjunction with, uh, with Amazon. Uh, which I hope is going to be another, you know, just a small drop in the bucket, but another opportunity for, for people uh, to get their works out there. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a print on demand publishing company and we'll also do eBooks and we also have, uh, we're going to do audio books as well. And Amazon's going to be the distribution platform for it. And um, I think that there's a lot of this going on right now that maybe people don't necessarily know about uh, or, or don't know how to find. And so I, people are writing. I mean, so many people are writing right now and, mm -hmm. and 
Yeah. You don't necessarily have to go to a big publishing house to get published and to be even to be successful. You can do it in a small small publisher or you could do it on your own even. It's interesting to me when I speak with agents who are seeing this shift because I feel like even 10 years ago when I talked to agents they wanted didn't want to hear anything to do with self-publishing, which I personally like to call independent publishing or indie publishing. You don't do it yourself. That's a misnomer. And the idea of doing it yourself is silly. Right. You know, right. anyone who's going to independently publish, they're going to get help. They're going to hire professionals. They're going to hire editors and, you know, book packagers. And you're absolutely right. Like this is opening doors for authors to get their books out. It's the gatekeepers are no longer in charge. The the people who are in charge are the readers, really, you Absolutely. know, and that's pretty exciting. And, you know, and I'm with you, like Amazon's kind of like the elephant in the room, you know, we, we want to hate them, but by the same token, they have forced the indie publishing world to break open in a lot of ways. Well, they're, and... forcing, they're forcing a lot of things in the world to break open. I wouldn't be, <laughs> I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be eating right now if it wasn't for Amazon. Good God. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it's pretty crazy, you know, and if we don't shift, if we don't pivot as the industry is pivoting, we will get left behind. So it's fascinating to me that you, you know, as a very successful agent, see this opening to start your own publishing imprint. Um, and I think that's pretty awesome. I want to hear more about what you're excited about and how you think this is going to change things for your writers. Um. Well, I, I haven't, I haven't launched a book yet. <laughs> so <we're, laughs> but you have three in the works. I have three in the works, I, uh, and and um, we'll have to what, check back in I'm, a year. What right, I'm, what, right. <laughs> a, 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 a lot of what I want, uh, what I'm looking to do, you definitely check back in a year. But a lot of what I'm looking to do is to, um, it's it's really two things. It's one to get some backlisted books that are really excellent, for mm -hmm. which the rights have reverted to the authors. Uh, back I hear a lot there. of that. Yeah. Back, right. Mm -hmm. So this is, th these are books that have already been professionally edited and marketed and uh, maybe, you know, 20 years ago, but uh, books that are still relevant that uh, still can find a readership. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm look, you know, I, I look to release those kinds of backlisted books. And then I'm also looking for, um, I also look to release uh, genre fiction and memoir from, uh, from writers who maybe have a backlog of material um, that uh, uh, for whatever reason couldn't find a home at a, at a traditional publishing house, but are really, really, really good books. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to put a, you know, and then, you know, to the extent that the imprint could put a marketing effort behind these books, uh, not only will these authors find readers for these, you know, darling worth, works of art that they have. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean that, you know, literally, uh, I mean, people pour their lives into writing a book. Yeah, and right. They, and no easy they, feat. No, yeah. not an easy feat. And what they would love is to have it read, not to kind of sit in a file on their computer mm -hmm. as, you know, as the agent comes back with sometimes 30, 40, 50 or 60 declines. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, that's happened with some of my writers before. You know, sometimes we get dozens of reclines. I, 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 one, one of the... One of the best-selling books I sold, I believe, had 60 declines before it was picked up. And then all of a sudden, it became a terrific book. Another book I have uh, uh, that was released last year called Norco 80 uh, by Peter Houlihan um, was rejected something like 20 times. And it was now it's, it's a 2020 finalist for both the Edgar Award and the Dashiell Hammett Award. That's so wonderful. Congratulations. That's cool. Congratulations to Peter. But, <clears throat> yeah, uh, for sure. And, and, you know, he's got another book now that... That, that just was purchased and was announced recently. So he's got a follow-up to it. But the point of those stories is obviously there are very high-quality, potentially popular works that are not mm -hmm. being picked up by the major publishing houses. And then when they do find a home, you know, I mean, for some reason, something like 20 editors said no to a book that ended up being an Edgar Award nominee. So. Well how is that, you know? Yeah, how is that a why, thing, right? Why, why should that? Well, it's a thing because this is a highly subjective mm -hmm. um, business, maybe the most subjective business. And, and, and authors, and I tell authors all the time, 
try your best. Don't be discouraged because yeah. there, you have to get ready to hear no. Because there, over, are, yeah. there are over and over sometimes. But that doesn't mean that book isn't good. That doesn't right. mean that your story is not beautifully written. It just means it wasn't subjective, subjectively working for a particular editor into whose hands uh, we got the book. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, but you got to keep trying. You keep knocking on the door and you keep knocking on the door. And sometimes the right road is to go through independent, smaller independent presses or mm-hmm. sometimes to do independent publishing on your own, you know? And what there, there's a book on my shelf right now that I believe has self-published and it's made hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, um, you know, people... This is an option. This is an mm-hmm. option. And it's not, you don't only have to go to the top publishing houses. Although, you know, as writers, we all want to go to the top publishing houses. We love the brand. And sure, I would have yeah. loved to have gone to Harvard University, but I didn't. <laughs> and I still built an okay career and I'm a happy person, you know? Right, so, right. I, I think we're going to see more of this because so many agents they believe in a book, they're, they're shopping the book. But what if that agent can instead do what you're doing, start an imprint and publish that book to great success? I mean, I think we're going to see a lot more of this moving into the future. Oh, it's already happening. I'm probably one of the last agents to get involved in something like this. <laughs> I mean, there are many literary agencies now that have literary imprints. Many. Well, and it, it makes sense probably to most. me on, on that end, because a runaway success for you is maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, whereas for a big publishing company, it's going to have to be, mm-hmm. you know, millions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also authors could get maybe a bigger share of royalties. That's uh, right. If and that's really cool. Presses. Because that's right. as, as you know, uh, sometimes the smaller houses will offer uh, much more, they'll offer lower advances, but they'll, uh, you'll make more money on the back end because um, you mm-hmm. uh, will, you know, often get, more generous royalty rates. I wonder what kind of advice you would want to give our listeners who maybe have been in that position to, you know, they've been shopping a title for years and getting turned down, but they really believe in this book. Like, what would you say is the next step? Uh, Presumably, uh, such theoretical writers have an agent. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, they should definitely go back to their agent <laughs> and find out, <laughs> you know, how many times have you sent the book out and where's the next submission list going to? Um, but to the extent that, you know, let, I mean, let's just say a particular novel has maybe been submitted more than 100 times. Um, I, I think a lot of agents, when they believe in a book, they just won't give up on the book. Some, right, not, right. Uh, a lot of, uh, some agents will, but a lot of agents won't. And, um, you know, if you have that kind of representation, then you really want to hold on to that agent because, you know, you need somebody to believe in it. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've quite had to go, had to go out to 100 editors yet, but for sure, I've, I, with some pro- projects that ended up getting published, as I mentioned, I've gone to maybe 60 editors before we find the right connection. Um, so I think a writer has to be sure that their agent is really putting utmost effort into the marketing. Um, and and if if they're gonna and then I think that writers should be open to smaller presses. Um, Absolutely, yeah, I yeah. Mean, right? it's, it's, didn't doesn't Stephen King write about in his memoir? I mean, he he got started by writing to like fanzines and 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 um, <laughs> and horror magazines. He didn't he didn't start by writing Carrie and ha- handing it to Doubleday. He yeah. you know he he had a, he had to start small. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say as an agent, when I get queries from, from writers, it really helps a lot if I see that someone's been already published in a smaller house, or if somebody has independently published and has maybe sold at least 10,000 units. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that says something to me that this person has this an person audience. Yeah. Has an audience. This person can write. This person has had some success. And maybe it's this next book then that is going to be a breakout for this mm-hmm. author. So, um, you know, if, if, if the objective is to find an agent for your next work and maybe you don't have an agent yet, well, I'd love to know that as an agent, I'd love to know that you've been published in maybe some literary reviews or uh, mm-hmm. you've um, 
you've gone with a small press or uh, that maybe you didn't make much money with at first, or uh, even if you independently published, um, that, you know, that tells me as an agent that this person's a serious writer and this person actually is a writer because this person, somebody has bought that book, somebody has read that book. Um, mm-hmm. And so this next book that that author might be pitching to me as an agent, to me, feels like it has more value than someone who is sort of like, I've written my first novel and I'm hoping to get it published by Simon & Schuster. I mean, right. that happens sometimes, but I'm a little bit more impressed when the person is really kind of working it. Yeah, and educating themselves about the industry and all of the options, because it really is an amazing time in publishing. The fact that we have so many different avenues, print on demand is open doors, the distribution channels are getting better. And it's, I think it's an exciting time. And if people are doing their research, and there's so much information out there in terms of education and learning how to market books and finding, you know, people who can edit and package and help you independently publish or find those small presses, independent book publishers association, IBPA is one of the best organizations here in the United States to help find those small presses and to network with those people and, and take, you know, writing workshops from someone like Jeff Auervan in New York city. And you're now teaching classes online. Is that right? Yeah. Everything is online right now. Uh, I mean, we're, we're hoping that we could get back to physical meetings at some point, but um, I'm going to continue to to keep uh, the online workshops going. Um, I, I work with people in London. I work with people in Madrid. I work with people in California, and I'm not necessarily limited to New York. Mm-hmm. It's pretty awesome. I, I think, you know, with this COVID-19 and this crazy upside down time that we're all experiencing, there, there is a bit of a shift and the way we perceive things and what we can accomplish is opened up greatly. I know you had told me once that, you know, a lot of your students didn't like the idea of not coming in and doing your workshops and not having that in-person experience. And yet now people are like, wait a minute, I kind of like wearing my slippers and pajamas when I do this. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. People, you know, I mean, I'm in Manhattan, but people are, you know, that come here, you know, they, some of them live in New Jersey. Some of them live out in Long Island. Some of them live in Brooklyn and, you know, it would, you know, they come to an evening session and we try to end by nine o'clock. And then a lot of times they're not home till 10. And so once we went online, now all of a sudden you could kind of kick back in your t-shirt and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, when we're done, we're done. You're home. <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah. And, I think and, it's pretty and cool. And we're getting things done. You know, we're, we're, we're getting things done uh, online just as, we, just as we were in person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to speak with Chad and I here on The Premise. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for all your insightful questions. And I hope I, I did them some justice. But thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. Our pleasure. You can learn more about Jeff Auervan and the Wright Workshops at therightworkshops.com. Look for Stone Tiger Press this summer and follow Jeff on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, be safe out there, friends, and thanks for listening. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey See Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey See Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeycmedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, 
build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There That's- are many writers. <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our premise podcast as well. 